0: Welcome to the Items podcast. My name is Lucy hazelgrove Planel. I'm a social impact scientist and an anthropologist, and I'm here with David Stern, a founding director of Items. Thanks for joining me, David. Hi, Lucy. Nice to be here. What are we discussing today? The topic for today is Items' views on agriculture. So, Items oh. and agriculture. I think we don't have views on agriculture, but anyway, yes. <laughs> Well, yes, perhaps what we'll end up discussing is why ITEMS doesn't have views, but works in agriculture or on agriculture. No, we do.
1: We we care deeply about it, but we work with experts rather than being experts. I think it's really one of the key things that we're supporters of people who work in agriculture much more than we are specialists ourselves.
0: Okay, great. So agriculture fits into the development side that. items is interested in? Absolutely. And especially in the the innovations for development?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, at the heart of a vision for what a future could look like, what does development look like in the future, not just for low-resource countries, but also I love in the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, I love the fact that this requires all societies to change. And if you look at one of the ways in which so-called developed societies need to change, it includes the
0: idea of sustainable agricultural systems and food systems. Well, exactly. Um, So we're recording this as there's the the COP28 at the moment. And I was just looking up in the UK. Apparently, in the last 30 years or something, the agriculture sector has fairly consistently been the fourth largest emitter of CO2. Yes. so there's even there there's a huge talent. My, my wife
1: is from a small village in northern Italy and she talks about how decimated their, their agricultural system has been because of the loss of hedgerows the loss of biodiversity which has come you know from different land uses and so on and the fact that actually now whereas before these were farming communities now the farming is basically not profitable. they have highly mechanized farming which isn't profitable. And it's something where the livelihoods of farmers has gone through. This is in high-resource environments, and this is a wealthy part of Italy, and and it is a part where there is profitable agriculture because it makes Prosecco around there. And so there is some agriculture there which is highly profitable. But even that, even the Prosecco industry is plagued by problems in different ways, Mm -hmm. and it's just the nature of our food systems
0: do mean that it's all very complex. And of course... What you're saying also reminds me of a film, a French film, I think it's from 2015, called Au nom de la terre, in the name of the land, and in that film it it highlighted basically all of the problems that normal agriculture, that normal farmers face, and because the whole system is all messed up, people get into debt, and then apparently uh, back in 2015, approximately one farmer committed suicide every day because of those problems, Um, (laughs) and again, that's in Europe. And this is in Europe, and a lot of our work
1: is in really low-resource environments where mm. these problems are exacerbated in other ways. And so, our reason for for caring deeply and trying to support people who who know about agriculture, I have some expertise, but I really am not very good at agriculture. I, you know, I don't know green fingers, green thumbs, whatever it is.
0: You know, I'm not very good at this. But,
1: but you have a really-, really
0: interesting history. And connection to agricultural research, would you like to say? Yes. a bit about that? I mean,
1: it's over 10 years ago when I started going and sitting in a room and saying, I know nothing about agriculture, I'm a mathematician. But with 10 years of doing that, I know a little bit about agriculture now. <laughs> I sort of gradually picked up quite a lot along the way. And I have so much respect for all the different people I've worked with and I've had the fortune to be working with world experts in their fields working in all sorts of different environments. And the main thing that I've taken away from my experiences is, man, it's hard. It's a really, really complex problem. Oh, I love complexity. (laughs) I think that's been coming out a lot, yep. (laughs) So this is the point, that in some sense, as problems go, agriculture in general is, is one of the toughest topics I've ever had the privilege of engaging with. And there's no... I would argue there's no easy solutions that I've ever seen. Anyone who's come forward with a silver bullet, bullet solution, as soon as somebody in the know talks to me about it, they say, well, okay, but mm-hmm. in this context or in that context, that's not going to work because, and it's not great because, and, and so on. This complexity, it isn't to say that there aren't good things out there. It's just, this is a really, I mean, it's this the essence of, pretty much all human life.
0: Well, so exactly, just to say that a lot of our work is with smallholder farmers, yeah. people who, well, it's not with those farmers, but it's people who do research about supporting those farmers. And these are subs- subsistence farmers then who, they may sell a bit, but a lot of it is actually for their own sustenance. Uh, and, and that's and
1: think- where, in that context, the power of the agroecological movement and agroecological ideas for smallholder farmers and farming communities which is what i think is really important it's not just individual smallholder farmers it's when they're together in communities and how those communities operate who they grow for what they grow and so on and how they become sustainable is not the right word because there's all sorts of things about sustainable agriculture and so on which don't align necessarily with this but Mm -hmm. this idea that in if you want vibrant rural communities, agroecology is obviously a key part of that, not in competition with anything else, but just because it looks at the whole system. It looks at the environment, it looks at the community, it looks at the society, and it looks at the agriculture itself and how it is productive in that context.
0: And this is one of the problems with agriculture in the past and monoculture, I think, isn't it? That it doesn't look at that whole system and that's what makes it interesting. Well, that's what makes it interesting for us to work on because it is systematic.
1: Absolutely. It's bringing in that complexity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are other people who are doing other really interesting works which I have a lot of admiration for as well. And this isn't in competition necessarily with the agriculture, agroecology side of the smallholder agricultures. But there's other people I have a lot of respect for who say, well, the future of agriculture isn't smallholders because of urbanization. Ah. If we have urban populations, if you've just got smallholders doing subsistence agriculture, who's feeding the cities? And yeah, that's, that's a really important see. point. Yeah. And this is also a vision of the future. Where are people going to live in the future? Are we looking at urban futures or are we looking at rural futures or are we looking at a mixture of both? Hmm. You know, a lot of the agroecology ideas can be applied to these bigger systems, which include cities. But actually, a lot of the communities pushing that movement are thinking about rural communities. And so this idea about what vision do you have of the future? And for people who have an urban vision of the future, well, that leads to very different priorities. We don't know whether it leads to very different solutions. I've just not engaged with those questions enough to really understand what that vision of an urban-based agricultural system. Oh, know, there's, there's some really
0: interesting, aqua, is it called aquaponics? you know, when people sort of yeah, yeah. grow plants out of water or something? Yeah,
1: exactly. This is one of the cases where when I started talking to this with some real experts, they said, yeah, I can understand in small urban environments or in cases where you don't have good soil, how that is a really interesting thing. But the whole point of soil is, do you really want to cover over your good soil and just ignore it? Soil's it soil is amazing. It is. Soil what makes agriculture fantastic. Now, that's not to say that you can't grow without it, and there aren't contexts where you shouldn't, you know, going to Mars. I have a feeling that aquaponics could be extremely valuable in that context where your soils might not be adapted in that context. But that's a whole different game. <laughs> if you stay on Earth. I can really see how there are real value to these ideas, and i mean, love these sorts of closed systems where you've got things growing over fish, and you've got the, the yeah, whole exactly, loop. Exactly. They're fantastic technologies emerging I think
0: there. they're very expensive, too, at the moment.
1: <laughs> well, yes and no. It depends what you're, what crop you're putting them with. If you're going to grow strawberries like that, strawberries is a pretty high-value crop. If you wanted to grow maize like that, maize <laughs> is not such a good idea. <laughs> it's, it's why it's so complex this is why it's such an interesting subject area Mm -hmm. and I don't have any of the answers I'm not an expert I have built up quite a lot of experience just talking to experts
0: and and And, I really value that and what I am to, to experts though I mean these are researchers in agriculture who we mostly work with
1: well, those are some of the experts. But the biggest experts I've ever met are farmers themselves. Right. In, oh, it's been amazing going in and talking to. I, my favorite example was this. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I was with some of these international researchers who I consider real experts. And I had the privilege of going and driving with them into a really rural part of Niger in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Uh, and one of them was actually a minor celebrity because her varieties of millet had helped all the farmers. And so everybody knew her name because they all valued the varieties, the participatory grown, and she'd be working. And so she was a minor celebrity in this village in the middle of nowhere. And we drove through the village, and as we were driving through, there was this funny weed growing everywhere that I didn't recognize. So I said, What's that? And the researcher said, Oh, that's just a weed.
0: And I said, Look, it's everywhere. This is in a country where, in a part of the country where not much else grows, I think, too.
1: Niger is, you know, I'm I'm privileged to have grown up in Niger. I love it. It's a fantastic place. But But they grow millet... (laughs) One metre, the plants, one metre apart, because basically it's like growing on the best ever beach you could ever imagine. Exactly. It is, right. in, it is the desert. You know, <laughs> For all intents and purposes, the desert with crops growing in it. But mm-hmm. in really tough environments. And so here they have this green weed growing everywhere in the village. And we just drove through and, and, and the researchers are saying, no, no, that's not, it's just a weed. Wait a second. You know, these guys... If it was a weed, they wouldn't let it grow like this. And so we said, well, we'll ask a farmer. So when we went and we met the farmers, they helped me ask them. And basically, my understanding is limited, so I apologize for the paraphrasing. But they basically said, if we transform it like this, like that, and the other, with about three or four steps, then we can feed it to our animals. Mm -hmm. So this this weed that was growing everywhere was actually fodder for the animals after they transformed it three or four times. They had to take three or four steps to get it so that the animals could consume it. But it grew where nothing else grew in that context, in that environment, Mm -hmm. and it became valuable. And that's why I was seeing it everywhere. It wasn't by chance. They are... It's part of the world where you don't get this everywhere. And I've lived a long time in Kenya, and I've worked quite a lot with Kenyan farmers. And basically, in Kenya, all other things being... Equal, you throw something in the ground and it will grow. It, yeah,
0: well, in in Western, is that in, in Western, Western, Western? Not
1: everywhere in Kenya, but there are parts of Kenya where you know it used to be a tropical rainforest. It's it's some of the In-careful. best environment in the world for growing stuff, whatever stuff would be. And so you actually talk to the farmers there, and some of them are surprisingly not knowledgeable because you don't need to be knowledgeable to do good farming uh, in Kenya. This is in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Niger, in rural Niger, you you don't survive. You literally cannot survive unless you're an expert farmer by any measure. So it's really interesting how actually these difficult environments, the farmers in them, some of them are just incredible.
0: I think what you're saying, though, Sohad, it's an important point in terms of our work for research methods support. Absolutely. Which is so sometimes we get given data by researchers. Sometimes there's a lot of questions. The que- The data raises a lot of questions, let's say. And so we always have to go back to the people who did the research or the people who grew the crops, i.e. the farmers, to actually understand what happened there. Yes. Um, so I, th- I think okay. that's a, an interesting point.
1: Well, and th- this is where, you know... Bringing more anthropological skills into our team for this work was not by chance. (laughs) Actually, most of the researchers in in West Africa, they weren't coming from a sort of anthropology background. That's not their background. They're more agricultural scientists. Mm -hmm.
0: They Um, were less interested in the people and more interested in the numbers or something. Well,
1: Not the numbers, but whatever their speciality was with respect to the crop they were looking at. But what I found consistently was that the researchers they knew their stuff, but their research methods was very traditional. And so I had examples where they would do relatively traditional trials where they would on station put lots and lots of fertilizer so that they could compare the treatments well, which is good scientific practice. But then you'd talk to them about the fact that actually that particular crop, farmers only used it when the soil was so poor that they couldn't grow the crop they wanted to grow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they, of course, didn't fertilize it. And so now on the station, all their results were not relevant to the farmers they were serving because the farmers didn't use the crop with fertilizer. They'd never dream of using that crop fertilized because their aim of using that crop wasn't to maximize yield. It was to get some yield while having an improved fallow where they could actually improve the quality of the soil without using fertilizer because they couldn't afford the fertilizer.
0: And that's and this important is important what... in terms of why we work in agriculture also, why we support researchers in agriculture. It's because we want to have impact. We want to support exactly. people to do research about agriculture to actually help the farmers. Exactly so to what, the well, well, this <laughs> is the
1: thing traditional research methods, you can do that research and you can get a good research paper and get good results. and that's one of the indicators of good research. Can you publish it? Do you get publishable results? But in this sort of context, what we are we're actually contracted by the McKnight Foundation. We're very grateful for that contract. It's a fantastic piece of work which we really enjoy. And this is how we got
0: involved in the agroecology. And
1: and what I loved about them as an approach is they didn't start in agroecology. They started with smallholder agriculture. So that was their focus. And basically it took a number of years at a leadership team level to discuss, well, what are we doing? What do we care about? We care about helping the farmers. And going through those cycles, agroecology came up time and time again not as the answer, but as a set of principles which actually help to have this more holistic view of the agriculture. It's not like organic farming where you sort of tick off the tick list, have you followed the tick list, and therefore you are stamped and accredited as organic. Agroecology isn't like that. But agroecology is about balancing out efficiencies within the system, yeah, It's about balancing out the sort of community aspect, the cultural aspects, the social aspects.
0: Exactly. That's what I find interesting, that it really brings out that sort of Human. considering the people within the whole system. <laughs>
1: exactly. Absolutely. It considers the environment and sort of what's happening within the environment, how the agriculture interacts with the environment more generally. And of course, more than anything else, yeah. agroecology is about having productive agriculture, which can feed people. The agriculture producing products for human consumption is central to it. It, it, it is a framework of principles. We like, and oh no, I like principles, and I hope others are starting to like principles as well. I really like principles. And so it has these-
0: You can't prin- discuss items without talking about principles, or you can't <laughs> enter items without becoming aware of principles.
1: <laughs> yeah, a principled approach is, yeah, it's something which has been so powerful for me in so many ways and and agroecology i think does do that in a way which serves smallholder agricultural communities exceedingly well and i learned that when i didn't know much about agriculture i had no preconceptions one way or another i still don't know and i still haven't entered the discussions enough to understand how well these principles align with an urban vision for the future, which some people have. And it's certainly a tendency in many African countries. It's not a tendency that I'm necessarily particularly in support of or like myself. I personally would love to see rural communities flourishing. And that's one of the reasons that I really want to support agroecology, because I think it's part of what could do that. But you'd also have to have jobs there. I lived in Kenya for six years and there were no jobs
0: Well, exactly. And I think in the countries that we work in, which is Burkina Faso, Niger, Mali and Kenya.
1: And Tanzania, Malawi, Uganda as well. We don't (laughs) do as much in those. But within CRFS and the MAGNITE, which is the Global Collaboration for Resilient Food Systems, those are the African countries. And we do contribute in all of them.
0: But those countries, people in those countries are still facing these sort of uh, people are moving from the rural areas to urban areas in order to find work.
1: Urbanisation is huge in all of these contexts. Not necessarily at any given point in time, but if taken over time, it is the continued trend. There is the emptying of rural communities in different ways, the ageing of rural communities. So this idea of what a sustainable rural community would look like that's something I'm really interested in. And I, I have ideas about this which have come through this long engagement. It's something which, if we are looking for a future with vibrant rural communities, then that's something which needs to be thought through. Now, it might be that we look at a different sort of long-term community where actually really we're looking at a very urban community we're looking at much larger proportion of the population living in urban areas the rural areas being on average much larger farm sizes rather than smallholder agriculture that's happened in a number of countries and it's happened successfully.
0: Well even during the pandemic in Europe we saw lots of people growing tomatoes and things in their houses (laughs) partly as something to do (laughs) but also, I mean, it showed that the possibilities of having more agriculture in cities.
1: But I think also in the pandemic, you saw lots of people moving back to rural environments, leaving the cities, going back to rural environments. So you did see the potential that even in urban countries, uh, urbanized countries, there could be a tendency to go back.
0: And that's partly also, as you were saying, because of the possibilities of the jobs, which is... The
1: jobs, which you can do remotely. Once you can remote work, well... Actually, it's quite nice to live in a rural community, to have your food grow just next to you, to have really fresh ingredients and so on. There's a lot of really nice things that come from living in rural communities. I should say, and I think I'm not really an advocate one way or another. I would have been an advocate totally for vibrant rural communities and not an urbanized future if I hadn't visited my sister in South Korea. And I was gobsmacked. I mean, I'd been to South Korea once before, and so it wasn't my first trip there. But when I visited her, and she'd been living there for a number of years, and so she actually understood quite a lot of the culture, and she'd just been blown away by it. And there were a number of things that she explained to me, which I I just loved. One one of them was, for example, they had this amazing penthouse suite. Sorry, this penthouse department. It was sort of—we're all imagining a huge
0: penthouse suite now. (laughs) No,
1: I'm afraid it was just—it was a regular apartment. They were all the same basically, but they got the top right-hand corner or something, and they thought this was fantastic. It had the best views. They didn't have neighbors to their right. They, They didn't have neighbors on top of them. They were really on top of the world, and. They got this cheap because nobody else wanted it. People wanted to be surrounded by people. Oh, yeah. You didn't want the outside apartment. That's an apartment where you're isolated on one side. You're missing a neighbour.
0: That's a nice way of putting it. You're
1: missing (laughs) a neighbour. It's a really nice way of thinking of it and putting it. You've lost a neighbour because (laughs) you're on the outside of the building. Mm -hmm. But but it was more than this, that food in the supermarkets was amazing. Instead of taking a bottle of wine when you went to visit someone, you'd take an amazing melon. Well, to be
0: honest, I've done that. People look at me really weirdly when I bring like a pineapple to a party. (laughs) And it's,
1: it's amazing there. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's again, it's, it's, and it's the value they place on a, a beautiful piece of fruit and, and the ingredients they use in different ways. And, mm-hmm. and the rural environments there are incredible. They are empty, not completely empty, of course, but the part that she was in was very urbanized and the rural communities were relatively empty compared to the population, but they were really valued. But the idea of actually sort of going out and going back to a rural community, if you could work remotely, nobody would have wanted to do that. They liked living in the city. That was their life. And they liked visiting and they loved it. And they they really worshipped the rural environment. But to visit.
0: It's different to my perspective, definitely, of what it's like to to live in urban or rural areas. yes. Um, and it's it, it suggests an interesting potential future, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Well, this is the thing. This gave me a vision of a an, an urban future which I could admire, which I could really like. I mean, most people in the UK, the urban future that people want, they really want a garden. It's the same in the US. You get out to the suburbs so you can have your own little piece exactly. of Exactly. Exactly. We so have
0: the house with a small people... bit of land, small, manageable, and manageable, very exactly.
1: Very small, very manageable. And you want to have a little bit of land because you want to be in an urban environment, but pretend you're in a rural environment in some sense. That and so very the urban sort of sprawl which takes over rural land and turns it into this is something which I'd grown up with in, or grown up with an awareness of. If you want to a rural environment, why not go and live in a village? If you can remote work why don't take it just a step further? And okay, you might have a slightly longer commute, but if you don't need to commute that often, that sounds much more attractive than peri-urban. So actually taking the full step of going rural, the peri-urban sprawl to me is what I always had as a vision of what urbanization looked like. But that's not how it looked when I visited my sister who was in Korea and they embraced real urbanization, the value in the urban context and wanting to keep as much rural context as rural as possible, and what that I've seen though
0: in it. what I've seen in Yemi in Nigeria. Yeah. Sort of people have compounds, and then they have some they have some animals within those compounds. Like this is in in the capital, yeah. so it, it's very urbanised, but they still have some animals. And there is an area that I saw along the river. There is a sort of gardening area, let's call it, yeah. where people have their own gardening plots, a bit like um, a lot lots UK, yeah. I guess. <laughs>
1: Yes. And I I have no problem with this idea of urban agriculture in all sorts of different ways is really exciting and very interesting as part of the future. I guess the key thing, the reason for that digression, this admiration for what I observed visiting a country which is very urbanized, but which had real emphasis on value for that pristine rural environment in certain ways as a rural environment, not as some way you could expand into a semi peri-urban environment that to me means that i do have respect for a vision of an urban future there are positive i think options of urbanization this happened relatively quickly in south korea as i understand it this was basically one or two generations that went from a really rural community to a highly urbanized community and they've done it in a way which seems very sustainable, see, from the outside, very ignorant looking in. <laughs> but, but you know, it was just impressive. And it was eye-opening to me that such a future of that dimension of an urbanized culture with real value placed on the rural was possible. And mm-hmm. And I guess what I come back to, and the reason I think that's important, is when you think of, in the African context, they're still in that process where, at the moment, they haven't lost their rural communities. In many other parts of the world, you're essentially having to rebuild them if they want to. In Italy, you've lost a lot of your rural communities. There were dead, deserted villages where you'd have to start again from scratch, whereas in most African contexts, it hasn't got there. Yeah. The, the, the rural communities are still there, but they're aging because the younger generation has left.
0: Exactly. So my colleagues talk about going back home and seeing people, seeing their family, but they themselves live in the capitals.
1: Exactly. and Well, it's either they live in the capitals or they live in a local, regional capital or whatever it is. They live in an urban environment. That would tend to be the trend. And so there is still a possibility, and I know a number of colleagues who given a choice, would actually go back and give back to their rural communities and create them and build them, but they can't work remotely from there. They're needed in the urban environments. If they could remote work, if that was possible, that might lead to a different possible future. And these are the sort of things where I I have no business trying to say what is the right or the wrong choice in any given context. But what we can do as an organisation and and with our skill set is to try and provide the tools to enable people to find out what could work in their contexts and support the research, support that investigation of finding the systems that work.
0: Exactly. And so I hope that we can really explore all of those ideas because there's so many opportunities uh, in agriculture and in the future of agriculture and in how we all live together.
1: Absolutely. And I have to recognise our bias because... Our bias is going to be to this smallholder vision of rural communities, because that's where we're working. And there's so many exciting things happening there. And it's not that I'm not interested in this urbanised future as well. It's just that we haven't had the privilege at this point to really think hard about it. So I don't have as much to
0: say. And none of the researchers we partner with are really engaged in that yet.
1: Ooh, I have a few people who you're not working with yet. Yeah. But <laughs> hopefully we're going to get some more work in that direction and, and we will do a bit more in that, in that direction where, where well we it. do investigate that and we start getting engaged in that as well. But to me, the key is, and I come back to the fact that when you're in that smallholder, vibrant rural community context, agroecology as a set of principles is fantastic. With that vision of the future... I love it. And that's what a lot of our current work is really focused around. And it's something where it's not just about our agroecology work, in our education work. What about actually getting training into rural environments? And also in our development work, what about getting digital jobs into rural environments? You know, this all fits in not just to agroecological principles, but to this idea of actually saying, what could a vibrant rural community of the future look like in these low resource, particularly African environments, which I have some experience observing and interacting with and and have the privilege to work with exceptional people who are in or working in those contexts? And that's something which we will be discussing
0: quite a lot. Across- yeah, exactly. There's a lot of exciting things going on and a lot of exciting potential futures
1: <laughs> absolutely and and our role in this and our views on this are very simple our roles is to help the evidence come to the fore to help people get evidence to help them to share that evidence to help to learn to use data well to use yeah. technology to use data well because that's something else that often is the enabling factor and the other thing which I'm sure will come up quite a lot in our discussions is just often our role is to listen and to yes. just hear and to recognize that context matters so much. And this is your anthropological side, you know, which is so important in this. Context matters so much that quite often you can know the theory as well as you like Whether it applies or not depends so much on exactly what the local situation is.
0: Just like you were saying with that fertiliser example and the crop which is grown specifically so that they don't need to use (laughs) fertiliser. Yes, exactly,
1: exactly. It's it's exactly, it is used in the context where they don't have the money to fertilise the crop they want to grow. And so they're wanting to get more fertile soil by doing an improved fallow with this other crop. And so it's very good farming. This has been traditional farming methods in a lot of different ways. They're in often a context where, you know, and this is this simple thing. It's the societal aspect. In many parts of the world, in Western Kenya, the plot sizes have become so small. So when you have your smallholder agriculture, they don't have enough land. You go to West Africa, there were communities in Mali where... They, they're more than enough land. If they wanted to use more land, they could just go to the village chief and ask them because there's land which is not being cultivated, which sort of is communal village land, but nobody has the manpower to be able to actually produce on it because it's not very fertile land. You can't just throw something in the ground and it will grow. No, you've got to work it. And it's really hard work. And if you don't have the manpower, and the manpower could be your limiting component. This is one of the reasons that that's still the highest population growth part of the world, pretty much. And it comes back to the fact that the land isn't the limiting factor, the manpower is in, in some of these communities. Now, of course, you could look to mechanization, but if you're not getting very much money back on what you grow, because you're not getting very high value crops, what you're getting is you're you're feeding mouths, well, then having the manpower is sort of kind of balances out, whereas mechanising it might not, because there might not be the market routes to get the money to pay. We for. We should go
0: into this in another session. Absolutely.
1: There's so much to go into. It's going to be fun. I look forward to the continuation of these discussions.
0: Exactly. Same. Thank you very much for your time, David.
1: No, thank you. This has been a fun discussion.